Hey guys, welcome back. Today we're going to go through a few reasons why smart people can be wrong. Note a question from a listener. Again, thank you guys for these. If you have a question for me, animus at animusempire.com. And this question, well, it all revolves around the main theme, or not theme, the subject of why are smart people wrong? How can smart people, given how smart smart people are, how can they be incorrect? This is in response to a video that I made about a month ago on critical race theory, postmodernism, where these current cultural trends come from ultimately. And I have a bias here, right? Trained as a philosopher, became a therapist. So I think that the ultimate root of postmodernism, critical race theory, is philosophical and emotional. People inheriting incorrect philosophical premises, not questioning those premises properly and people carrying bad ideas to certain conclusions in part to manage their anxiety. That's where a lot of it, uh, poor philosophical issues or ultimately dest destructive ideas. If you're ever looking for, if something, if somebody is doing something destructive, if a human's doing something destructive, then it's ultimately either sexual in nature, like why, you know, why is that 25 year old kid going off that huge uh, snowboard jump? Hey, well, look, uh, he, he could break his leg. You know, he, he could do something worse. He could damage his brain. He could, he could kill himself. Why would you take that risk? Okay, well, this is a sexual function. By going off that uh, huge uh, snowboard jump, he's saying, look how, look what a great mate I am. Look at all these people who are attracted to me. And that is a good evolutionary strategy. It can be a good evolutionary strategy. Now, there's a way to manage that, do it in a proper way, not a destructive way. I don't think that going off snowboard jumps is a bad. I think it's a lot of fun. I've done that. It's a lot of fun. But at what extent or to what extent is um, that become self-destructive is uh, in part because of the second reason why we do things that are that hurt ourselves. And it's because of neurosis. Ultimately, so whenever you find somebody doing something self-destructive, this is true for animals too. Well, animals don't have reasons, so they can't really have neurosis, but, well, they can to a less extent. We're not going to go into that now. But if an animal's ever doing something that's putting himself in danger, you go, okay, well, this is some kind of evolutionary uh, sexual function, right? Like the peacock feathers. Like, well, why do peacocks have these long feathers? Do uh, female to be hens, I was going to say female peacocks, <laughs> to, to be, to do be hens, uh, find them beautiful. Well, yeah, maybe they find them beautiful, but ultimately if some, if a peacock has, you know, really long feathers, it can fly in front of predators, then he is, uh, you know, probably have stronger genes. And there's just tons of examples of that. I think I'm already getting off topic. So my response to why, where critical race theory comes from, is poor philosophy and poor emotional issues. And this listener who asked the first question is now asking a question in response. He's like, hey, that was a really great answer. Wow, you're really smart and intelligent. I can't believe what a smart and intelligent and, and also handsome. I'm a straight guy, but they just, I can't believe how, how handsome that answer was, okay. Uh, but it didn't really satisfy him. So he's, he's prodding me a little bit and I appreciate these prods. I, you know, th this gets me thinking. It helps me to know where you guys are coming from. That's why I really want you guys to ask questions like you're not detracting from me. You know, you're not taking up my time. This is really important to me to like listen to you guys, see where you're coming from, hear what you're thinking about. He said that my answer, that it was one of poor philosophical premises and poor management of emotional issues. He says this was unsatisfying. So 
I'm going to go through, I have 10 reasons here, other reasons, and this is not going to be exhaustive. You know, this will probably be unsatisfying as well, mostly because this issue of why can smart people come to wrong conclusions? We have these eyes, we have these ears, we have this brain, and there's reality. Why can we not perceive reality in the correct way? Or maybe we can perceive reality, our, our senses don't lie to us, but the, what we do with that information, it ends up being incorrect. You know, this is a profound question. Uh, Socrates asked it. He didn't really have a good answer. I think that a lot of the answer is our emotional issues. We, in a sense, develop beliefs that make us feel more secure. And those beliefs may be wrong. And this is what I said in the first video. I'm not going to, but I, I'm just laying it out what I said. I'll link to it in the description. And these, these beliefs may be wrong. That doesn't matter. It doesn't matter on a certain level so long as these beliefs make us feel good. So long as these beliefs help us to manage anxiety, right? Like the snowboarder going off the jump. That doesn't make sense. Actually, that does make a lot of sense. If you're a 24-year-old male, that makes a lot of sense. Now, maybe if you're 44, it doesn't make so much sense, and that may be indicative, indicative excuse me, of something not quite right. But at 24, it makes a lot of sense. And it's not about quashing that. It's not about saying, oh, don't you see how irrational it is to go off this big snowboard jump? It's about bringing awareness to what you're doing. And while you can recognize that what you, you know, going off this big snowboard jump does have an evolutionary wisdom to it, it can also become self-destructive. Now let's tease out any neurosis that would make you want to go off the snowboard jump in the first place so it is much less likely to be self-destructive and you know you can achieve your goal of that which is to uh, get a girl to like you. Uh, not that that's the only goal. I mean it's a lot of fun I think in its own right. But that's gravy. Okay so here's 10 reasons why smart people do do dumb things. The first one is the overtint window, right? And this is what is acceptable to talk about in a certain context. And I think we really need to come to terms with the overtint window and how much it really impacts us. This is what I talk about in my article, The Politics of Your Mind, and I have a portion of that article in my book, Man's Guide to Psychology. I talk about how Look, when groups come together, or not when groups, when people come together, what inevitably happens is that people will, in that group will uh, blank out facts. They will deny facts for the health of the group. So if there's a certain fact that you know, maybe contradicts the, the purpose for the group, then people will naturally deny those facts so the group can persist. Now, this doesn't happen all the time, but it's what tends to happen. And why does this tend to happen? I would say it goes ultimately to insecurity, to anxiety. We don't feel capable of dealing with reality on our own, so we need to be part of a group to do it. We don't feel capable maybe validating ourselves on our own, so we need to be part of a group to help us feel validated. Well, I must be validated because, look, this group uh, elected me vice president or treasurer. Okay, so I think that's one of these main things that goes on. And what happens is, is groups develop Overton windows. There are facts that just a group does not acknowledge. I mean, I don't know if you remember, probably not. This was several years ago now, but I had a professor on to argue with me about gender as a social construct. Um, and, you know, he came on and said, I think he was from Antioch University. I, I forget. You know, he, he was a good guy and everything. We had a good discussion about it. There's obviously disagreements there. But he came on it, you know, he said point blank to me without a, a hint of irony. 
that his students at, at his university in his PhD uh, psychology program, they can bring up whatever they want. Any scientific fact is on the table. And then I said something I think relatively mild about gender as a social construct and how actually, gee, maybe a lot of our thinking, a lot of our drives are determined by hormones, by testosterone level. And all the studies that you cite are from prepubescent children. There's already differences in prepubescent children, but especially after puberty. You know, testosterone really, and that's just one factor. That's one factor that goes up in, in men, uh, relatively low in women about, uh, men have about 30 or 40 times more testosterone than men, especially around breeding age, or than women, you know, you know what I mean, around breeding age. And, you know, e even if you take, and we know this now with uh, transgender people, they go on hormone therapy and we, you know, you double somebody's testosterone levels and they present as a different person. You would look at, uh, you know, the, the personality test of somebody with half the testosterone, even though it's the same person. And you, if you were just the scientist looking at the results of the test, you go, oh, this is a different person with a, you know, completely different, you know, big five, right? Well, no, that's not a different person. They just have different hormones. And, and, and it's just interesting, the fact that I brought that up and, and it was, it, it's like, he's never even heard that, right? This is somebody who said, earlier on in that discussion that, well, you can bring up whatever you want, of course, right? The, you know, psych, uh, psychology is a science. So I think we really need to be aware of the extent to which the Overton window limits our thinking. And we all do this. This isn't just a rip on academia. Academia is a huge perpetrator of this right now, but we all do this to a certain extent. We'll get to it. And this listener also says something to the effect of, you don't have to be that smart to notice what's wrong with universities, especially around their pushing of critical race theory as a political agenda. Of course, they don't think it's political at all. They just think it's the facts of reality. And I just got to push back on that and say that, you know, the people in academia, you know, you go on Twitter or you go on your Reddit forum, you know, whatever it is that has its own Overton window, by the way. You go in there and people are criticizing academia. You, know, you even look at somebody like Peter Thiel. Great criticisms of academia. I mean, what do you think happens within the, the confines, within the walls of academia? Do you, do you think they, they listen to what Peter Thiel says and, say, and think, oh, well, that, that guy makes a really good point? No. They, they don't even hear it. It's like, you know, I, I think that I'm sure that podcast is deleted. I got this sense that when I was arguing with this uh, psychology professor about gender as a social construct, it's almost like he didn't hear me. Now, of course, I can be a better communicator, but there is an extent to which the, the Overton window just limits what gets in. So no, people in universities don't notice the problem. They look at the, the Florida ban on critical race theory, teaching them in public university classrooms, and they read that as, and I've heard them say, and I mean, you'll hear people say, but I've definitely heard professors say, oh, you just don't want us to teach racism and, and why it's wrong. Therefore, you're for racism. Right? That is their interpretation of what's going on based on what they view as acceptable to talk about. And we all do it. Another part of my original answer, go back and watch the, the, the video, again, I'll link to it, is that people just don't read Aristotle. I mean, I think Aristotle is a very influential philosopher. And this listener asks, well, why wouldn't people read Aristotle? Why can't people 
you know, look at Kant and, and look at the, by, by, by the way, I think that Kant's a great philosopher. We got to read him. I think there's important points there. Ultimately, the context in which Kant was arguing is incorrect. Jung came around and corrected that and said, actually, Kant's points are psychological. That's what makes it profound. That's what makes Kant profound, but that's what makes Jung even more profound. But what, people don't uh, read Aristotle? I mean, no, you can, go, uh, you can go throughout your entire philosophical career from BA to PhD and not really have to read Aristotle that much. And I think part of the reason, just as a side point here, so this would be point number two, is that you know Aristotle essentially brought on the Renaissance. And around 1200, Aquinas and you know other philosophers, uh, other scholastics, Aquinas wasn't the only one, but he was the main one. He opened up Aristotle, right? It, uh, Aristotle was introduced to the West through uh, the Islamic Empire. I forget the exact thinker. Aquinas opens up Aristotle and thinks, whoa, this guy makes some really good points. You know what I'm going to start to do is I'm going to argue for the existence of God based on what Aristotle says. And, you know, you go read somebody like Dawkins, Richard Dawkins, who's a brilliant biologist, terrible philosopher, but a brilliant biologist. Just another, you know, another reason if you get really good at one thing or one area and everybody tells you how smart you are, you think, oh, well, I'm going to go into philosophy and, and talk about that. But it's just blatantly obvious to anybody who knows anything about philosophy that Dawkins doesn't really know anything about philosophy. And so Dawkins says, well, look how terrible Aquinas is as a philosopher. He's defending these guys, the ontological uh, argument for the existence of God. Um, that's, but that's not really why it's important. Why it's important is that now the church is trying to defend itself against reason. That's why it's a big deal. What Aquinas actually does is introduce reason and, and testing, like truth-testing premises of the church. Right? And he didn't do a good job against Aristotle, but it just like implanted that seed, which eventually brought on the Renaissance. But what happened is, okay, so first the church defended itself against Aristotle, but like what the church has done, the Catholic Church has done, is it's slowly incorporated truth. Uh, you know, it's been fighting culture, but through that fight with culture, it also incorporates the truth because, it, at least on a philosophical level, it's on the losing side. On a psychological side, the church is probably on a winning side, but on a philosophical level, the church is on a losing side when you put it up against you know, a great mind like Aristotle. It's, it's just not going to win long term. So what happened there, the bad thing is that Aristotle became associated with the Catholic Church. So now, in academia, people will scoff at Aristotle They'll call him a, a simplistic philosopher. And don't you know how complicated the relationship between our mind and reality is? Yeah, that is a complicated psychological question, not a philosophical question. Again, going back to my point, um, why Jung, or how Jung, in, in a sense, corrected for Kant. Uh, so that's another reason why smart people have a difficult time seeing what's going on with critical race theory, postmodernism, how it is developed from this philosophy from you know 200 years ago. And not that Kant's the only wrong one, he's just more or less the nexus of wrong. And he's the most intelligent wrong philosopher of that time, of the beginning of modern philosophy. And not the same thing as modern art, or modernism. A lot of, uh, you know, uh, a lot of concepts here we need to clear up. All right, so the third reason 
why smart people can be wrong is I think just in general, I mean, we're talking about academia in the original video. I mean, academia really attracts insecure people. And I don't think this is all, always the case before the Industrial Revolution, before, I mean, there's always capitalism, but before capitalism really became a dominant force in society, I could see, you know, if you're a smart guy, you go to the university, you get a teaching job. Now, people who are attracted to academia tend to be, tend to be insecure, tend to want the, to wall themselves off. I mean, this is a pattern that I've seen. It's not true all the time, but I think this is definitely the rule. Academia, I mean, if you're smart and you have a good ideas and you're comfortable communicating with people, you, you want to be out in the world. You want to be out in the world working, applying ideas, maybe starting a company. But to wall yourself out, off in academia, to, to, to search for a, a tenure job, it is, in my estimation, an indication of insecurity. Right now, they're the, you know, it, it's just, um, it, okay, like, like prostitution. Like back 150, 200 years ago, there, there just weren't many job prospects for especially lower class women. So it makes more sense that one of them would choose prostitution back in maybe 1825. Um, now, I mean, there's way more options for young women, especially lower class women. So now if somebody chooses prostitution, I'm, I think prostitution, uh, it's, it's a complicated issue. But... You really have to look at the issues that a woman goes through, not that um, we need to uh, criticize her, not that that's helpful, but just from a psychological perspective, why would you choose something like this now that you have all these other options? I think uh, it made a lot more sense for a woman back in 1825 to do it, but now you look at you know a woman who become uh, prostitutes and porn stars. You know, they're, they're very capable. They're capable of doing many other things, yet they still do, do choose this profession. Why? You know, usually something going on there. Some issue that they have not fully resolved. Uh, the fourth reason is I think that uh, many people, especially academia, like I was just saying, really aren't as emotionally healthy as you think. This listener tends to think that, well, there must be some emotionally healthy people in academia trying to figure out these difficult ideas so you can't just blame it all on that and I don't blame it all on that definitely but we have to submit that as a pretty you know significant part here we have emotional issues and and we try to again like I said we develop a worldview that protects us from those emotional issues especially when we don't really know how to manage them uh, I we're, we're still just learning how to manage emotional issues as a civilization this is what I'm trying to do in part with my anger and anxiety map. You know, just show me this is what emotions are. This is how they operate. This is the structure for them. And even something as I think relatively innocuous as that, I get pushback from. But again, not even pushback. Again, you know, like when when I had that uh, professor on arguing about gender as a social construct, like you, you just don't hear it. That is still so outside the Overton window, at least in academia psychology, that emotions do have a structure that a lot of people, they just don't hear it. Um, yeah, it, it's like if somebody tells you that the sky is purple out of the blue without context, it, you may not actually hear them, right? Like when the uh, conquistadors came to Central America, the Aztecs or the Mayans, you know, like at the end of Apocalypto, they didn't even see them. They didn't even see the conquistadors, the Spaniards. 
because they, they just didn't have a frame of reference for that. And I think that's very much true with ideas. And then the fifth reason is, um, yeah, it's not just about emotional issues, it's about ideology. You know, I think window dressing, and, and this goes, you know, folds into my discussion on the Overton window. There's this thing called window dressing, and it's like straw man, it's like a straw man argument, but more pernicious. So a straw man argument is when you misrepresent the other side to make your side look better. But a window dressing goes a step further. It's when you correctly represent the other side, point out the errors in the other side, and then use those errors to justify how you're right. Well, look at how wrong the other side is. Clearly, since the other side is, is so incredibly wrong, and this contributes to our cultural divide today and why, you know, really smart people who I think, you know, the, the, the two archetypes of this now in our culture are uh, Ben Shapiro and um, Sam Harris from the right and the left, respectively. I think these are really smart guys who ultimately don't say anything of much value because they're so uh, <clears throat> they're so committed to just proving and uh, the other side wrong and saying, well, look how ridiculous this other side is, and they're both right, but ultimately they end up both being wrong. I mean, <clears throat> it's amazing. Try to get involved in some fringe movement, like the Flat Earth. I think I brought up this before submerge yourself in that movement go hang out with those people look at all their arguments and just focus on that for a month i think you would have a very difficult time not succumbing to it to some degree even though the earth is not flat right it is definitely a sphere um elongated spheroid or whatever it is because of the rotation but there's a lot of convincing arguments there and why do those arguments work? Well, because they completely do away with contradictory arguments. So you can just get involved in this kind of way of looking at the world and think that it's just right and everybody else is wrong and you won't even hear another argument. I mean, if you're really smart and you know a lot about math and maybe geography, I don't know what, um, you know, spatial uh, physics, whatever, then yeah, you can of course poke holes in the flat earth argument, but, but a lot of people just won't be able to. I, I mean, the Milgram experiment, right? The Stanley Milgram um, obedience experiment, of course, famously, I think in 1950s, he brought in uh, people and, and said, people are, are on the other side of this wall. If they give a wrong answer, you have to shock them with this electric shock. Of course, it wasn't a real electric shock. The other person on the other side, the learner, was in on the experiment, and they were only acting like they were getting a shock. So they would answer questions incorrectly on purpose, and the, uh, the teachers, right, the teachers who weren't in on the experiment, who the experiment was being done on, the learners weren't on it, the teachers weren't, would give them the electric shock and the learners would act like it was really hurting them. And, you know, we look at this study and go, oh, th this is why uh, something like the Holocaust could happen because people would just give orders and you give some guy a lab coat. Um, he's, you're gonna listen to him. Even if you're clearly hurting somebody, of course, something that nobody ever brings up about the Milgram experiment, unless it's in a textbook or you, you go on Wikipedia or something. I mean, it's out there, but what nobody brings up about the Milgram experiment is that the teachers were told, the people who weren't in on the experiment were told that they weren't doing any 
real physical permanent harm to the other person. So they, they could be complaining about their heart. You know, some guy said he has a heart condition. He's complaining about his heart. He's ultimately not. Yes, he's hurting him, but he's not really doing any permanent damage. And you can't bring this up. You cannot bring this up in academia classrooms. I've tried. I've said, well, couldn't you interpret this as people just caring about science? I mean, I, if, if I was the, the teacher in, in the uh, Milgram experiment, I would have gone all the way. I would have gone to the 100% electrical shock because you told me I'm not really hurting him. You know, it's like if you're coaching a, a you know, Pop Warner football and you're making these uh, fifth graders run uh, wind sprints and they're complaining and, you know, some kid's going to complain about it. Hard, and you're just going, OK, dude, just you, you got to do these wind sprints, right? But that fact, that fact on the Milgram experiment, you, it's, like, you cannot talk about. People do not talk about it. Um, you know, same thing with the uh, Zimbardo Stanford Prism experiment. You know, some more information has come out about that, and it turns out that there were intimidating tactics making people stay. They, they weren't allowing them to leave to get the result that they wanted, which is you put somebody in this guard position and they're going to act like a guard. Um, but again, you can't bring that up in academia because these say a certain thing about, yeah, these experiments say a certain thing about humanity. Um, a, a view about humanity that we have bought into as a, as a field. Psychology as a field has bought into to legitimize something like sociology. Uh, and so we can't. You know, we can't um, accept these certain facts about the Milgram experiment, even though it's right there in black and white in textbooks. I mean, old textbooks. I, I think new textbooks, they don't put that in there. But old tech, and by old textbooks, I mean old for me, so from 2001, right? Um, another reason, okay, we're going kind of long, but, I, you know, I think this is uh, good information that we just need to consider. And again, this is not exhaustive, right? Like this answer, like I, th I think I said already, this answer, is, is not going to be that satisfactory. There is no satisfactory reason why smart people can do dumb things and be really wrong. And I will get to why that is, I think, ultimately. You have to be aware of to the extent to which people will go after prestige, well, people will care about prestige more than anything else. I, I mean, look at the academia system. You have really smart people, like 130 IQ people, uh, you can't be too smart in academia. There's, there's really not a lot of people with like 145 IQ who, who uh, make it in academia too long. I'll, I'll say just as an aside, maybe some reason for that. But you, you, you look at the academia system and a lot of it's about prestige and you put people in a system with these Overton windows and want to get along with other people and certain universities get a prestigious air about them and you will get paid very little money considering how smart you are and you don't care. You will publish a lot of papers. You, you never get paid for these papers. You get grant money for these papers, but the journals don't, don't pay you, which is ridiculous. Um, but you do it for the prestige. You will gladly, like Overton Windows, like, um, like group bias, like group politics, you will gladly uh, push facts away for the sake of prestige. And I think... We, we really need to come to terms with the, to the extent that people will do that. Um, 
I think part of this is, yeah, the grant system embeds order, you know, it doesn't leave a lot of room for new ideas. Uh, you know, usually when the government runs things, not that the government's bad at running all things, but if you want innovation, um, right, like if you want, um, if you want to set up, you know, it's not just about governments. If you want to set up any organization that evolves well, that adapts well, do you set it up like a pyramid where there's like a leader at the top and, and it just gives orders to everybody else below? No, of course not. You set it up more like an organic, you know, fluctuating organism kind of thing where each branch is autonomous, but that's not the way government works. Uh, there's like a, a certain group of people with all the power giving out the money and so you kind of just fall in the line and it just doesn't leave a lot of room for innovation right you're, you're not going to get innovation any sort of real innovation out of academia at least in, in, uh, in regards to the humanities and soft sciences um, so the grant system i think that's another thing it just embeds the order um, you know same thing with uh, the catholic church and like with penn state uh, right uh, with the uh, Penn State um, sexual abuse right there's that guy Jerry Sandusky who was uh, sexually abusing all those boys and people knew about it but people didn't want to say anything and why well because Joe Paterno was the guy in charge right it, it didn't seem like a system set up w with a lot of autonomous branches run by smart people Joe Paterno was the guy in charge if he didn't look at it you didn't look at it and that's simply how it was set up, and that is how the grant system is run as well. You know, it's why the sexual abuse scandal, I know, and you can say that and people overplay it in the Catholic Church and make it out to be a bigger deal than it is. I mean, that that's kind of uh, bothers me when Catholics say that about the sexual abuse scandal. I mean, just admit what went on. Admit what went on. Look at how your organization could have perpetuated this. And don't just say, oh, well, a lot of teachers sexually abuse children too. Okay, maybe they do. That's a separate problem, but at least look at what's going on there. Like my, my issue is, and this is my bias towards the Orthodox Church, is why is there no sexual abuse scandal in the Orthodox Church? Why is there one in the Catholic Church? Because the Catholic Church has this rigid hierarchy, this rigid structure. The Orthodox Church is set up way more like an organism, less like a pyramid. Um, I think another issue is that a lot of academics, especially in philosophy, and this is something that I've just noticed and I could be wrong, and this is good speculation zone here. I just don't think they care that ideas matter. They, they don't see ideas as really mattering here and now in this world. They think it's a great mental exercise. And I got this specifically from my logic professor in undergrad. I just got the sense that he didn't care that the, the kind of formal logic, which does has, have some value, but very uh, a lot, uh, relatively little real world value. He just didn't care that it doesn't matter. He's like, look, this is what we do. Um, it's a good mental exercise. It's something that makes him look smart, something that he's good at, and he's a smart guy, but he just doesn't care that philosophy doesn't matter that much in the real world. So I think a lot of people will just read Kant and say this is an interesting argument, and it is, and I think people need to read it, but a lot of philosophers especially, they, they don't really care to think how these ideas manifest in the real world and say, hmm, so Kant, what he did is created this space between our mind and reality. He created the opportunity for people to legitimately say this is my truth, ultimately. Do you not see how that leads to something like critical race theory, like postmodernism, 
like the the some of the best minds on the right also who also of course integrate kind of I mean Kant was a Christian he was trying to defend Christianity and they take his arguments to supposedly defend against the critical race theory but ultimately what they base their arguments on is some faith some appeal to faith as well some logo some capital L logos which of course comes from on high typically how it's discussed in our culture today um, is that 10 things um, I, I just want to say uh, all this said I mean we, we we have come a long way I mentioned Aquinas you know smart people are more in tune with reality it just takes a long time and we're just dealing with these ideas from 200 250 years ago this this arise of, of modern philosophy from Kant predominantly it, we're just still dealing with it right I mean it's like why haven't we gotten it right? Well, maybe we are getting it right. We just haven't gotten it right yet. Um, it, you know, it just takes some time, and this is just the nature of, of humanity. I mean, it's the nature of all of us, and I think this is what this ultimately is about. Like, like you learn something, and it's amazing. Like, okay, so for example, I, I use the example of talking to girls. Like, really smart guys will acknowledge that yes, if I do not talk to a girl, if I do not ask out a girl, there's no way I'm gonna be successful. Right? It's just not gonna happen for me. And they go out and they do not talk to girls. They do not ask out girls. And this will happen over and over again with really smart guys. And they'll come up with great excuses. Oh, you know, especially when you're intelligent, the, the rationalizations that feel like reason, they're ultimately rationalizations, right? Based on anxiety, you're trying to manage your anxiety through using your reason. And they just come up with these great stories for why they cannot ask out this girl in their math class, for instance. Um, so that's the ultimate point here. It, it, like, when you're looking at, out at culture, and you're, especially if you're looking at people on what you consider to be the other side of our cultural uh, you know, dichotomy, our, our, our cultural divide going on right now, and you think, well, look at how wrong they are. Or let's look at how these smart people are wrong. And let's try to investigate it from that perspective. Yeah, that's helpful. That is a philosophical question. That's what I you know, try to go through here. But ultimately the question is, right? The issue is, I think you guys know what I'm going to say if you've listened to more than two minutes of my videos, is that the real issue is, can you look at yourself and, how, and see how you are incorrect in the same way? that this isn't about me criticizing that guy from Antioch College and saying, oh, because of your Overton window, you know, you think you're open to questioning, but you're really not. My challenge there is to see how I do the same thing. I can criticize the Catholic Church. I can criticize Penn State football and how these organizations are set up. Do I offer the same criticism to myself? Where do I do the same thing? Now, I may not be in charge of a pyramid-like organization, but... I have the same pyramid-like organization in my mind that <clears throat> comfortably uh, distracts me from facts that I do not like to look at. And these can be devastating facts. Um, and part of going through depression, I think, especially as a young man, is, is really coming to terms with these facts that are just horrible. Just a tragedy to look at, but you got to look at them. Not that you accept the tragedy, but the more you accept the facts, the more comfortable you get with acknowledging these facts and incorporating them into your psyche 
and emotionally dealing with them, the less they're going to affect you. And of course, that's how you overcome certain depression, especially in you know the serious young man kind of depression. So it's not to the point here isn't to look at oh look at these people in academia, even though they're smart, they're wrong. Look at what they're doing wrong. It's to ask how do we do the same thing? Right? How do we commit the same emotional logical errors? And ultimately, when you do that, you can really see the issue for what it is and where people are coming from because you realize I'm part of it too. So I will leave it there. Thank you guys for these questions. Um, I know that went a little long, but hopefully that's helpful. If you have a question, again, animus at animusempire.com. And always remember, when you uh, try to figure out why somebody else could be wrong, it's usually more helpful to look at why you're wrong.